I went 41 years of my life as a otherwise straight white man. As far as everyone knew, I was just, I wasn't ready to come out yet. Um, so I've seen the world from the America from the lens of a straight white man in America. Um, and now I'm seeing it from a marginalized community and it's totally different. And so my wife, who is not transgender, um, there are times whenever I try to have the conversation on, on specifically being transgender, um, and some people won't give me the time of day, they won't even listen to me because they have a deep held belief that was driven by the news, the media, uh, a politician, you name it. They have uh, whatever that has driven their current beliefs. But then my wife, my wife can have the same conversation with them and all of a sudden she catches their attention, she gets their ear. And that's where allyship is so uh, important. I mean, and that's why I really, really want the marginalized communities to wrap their arms around allyship because it's important because sometimes those people can reach the people that we need to actually enact the change better than we can. And that's, that's power. Welcome to the Voices of Inclusion podcast, the place where you'll hear strategic and tactical advice shared by diversity, equity, and inclusion experts. This podcast is brought to you by Matheson.io, the world's first DEI operating system. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to Matheson.io. The link to connect with us is in the description. Let's get back to the episode. All right. So Adeline, I know you as a person who is an amazing people leader and someone who has an incredible perspective on people leadership and DEI. But um, for anyone that's not familiar with you yet, uh, could you let our listeners know a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, sure. Thanks for having me first, Robert. Um, so I'm a prevention, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility officer. A lot of people just refer to that as diversity and inclusion um, for a branch of the federal government located here in Los Angeles. Um, in this role, I utilize direct feedback and demographic data to assess, identify, and address barriers to you know, the, the personnel getting fair and equitable treatment. And then we educate and develop every level of the workforce on all things that have to do with culture. That's awesome. Um, and in the uh, content that you shared with me, um, it, it, I know that you talk a lot about the importance of blended boardrooms and how you've seen companies execute that aspect of their mission. Um, could you talk a little bit about the, the, the concept of blended boardrooms and why that's important? Sure, sure. Um, so that was, that was a unique name I gave to uh, the solution that I think is out there. Um, I don't believe that it's necessarily happening at most organizations, but I do believe it's one of the biggest solutions to fixing the imbalances of equity and belonging. So blended boardrooms is essentially um, a way to overcome the barriers, again, to equity and belonging. And the way you do that is you're fixing, fixing an imbalance of your organizational talent at all levels of, the, uh, of your company. So entry, mid, senior, um, I know that most people will probably notice that when we focus on diversity and inclusion, we typically are looking at our new accessions, we're looking at entry-level employees, maybe mid-level management, but far too often I see where the senior levels of management and leadership are excluded from that talk and that conversation. So, and then that's based on a number of demographic traits. It could be the color of your skin, the way you talk, you know, your weight, maybe you don't fit the image. Uh, maybe you have a disability, gender, 
sexuality, neurodivergence is a new one that uh, a lot of people are focusing on right now, and then many, many other reasons that you may not be able to, to make your way into the boardroom. Um, so as far as like uh, discussing diversity and inclusion, I always tell people you have to open your aperture to where it belongs. And I'll argue all day that it belongs uh, at every level of the institution, just like I said, from the mail room to the boardroom. When you go into a business and you walk into the first floor and you look at the, uh, the mail room, I say, you know, it's very diverse. There's a lot of diversity in the, in the entry levels of a corporation, but as you climb the steps and go to the boardroom at the top of the building, you lose a lot of that uh, demographic diversity, so uh, cultural diversity. So that's where I say mail room to boardroom. So you asked about how senior leaders could do their part in fixing this imbalance. Um, and I think first and foremost, they need to become allies, um, all, likewise called allyship. So they need to become educated on what are the struggles and challenges that historically marginalized and underrepresented communities have faced, what are they currently facing and what are they projected to face? And then they need to understand that those opportunities that got them to where they are now, such as the boardroom or such as senior level leadership, may not be available to all the other persons within your organization, especially those that don't have a mentor that looks like them in the mid and upper level uh, roles there in your company. So uh, another recommendation to leadership is they need to be willing to deliberately mentor people that don't necessarily look or behave like them uh, because what you'll routinely see within your organization, like if you walk into the cafeteria, just as a, a baseline example, mm -hmm. you typically see similar demographics sitting with each other, communicating with each other. And it's, and it's purely based off of comfort and liked interest, shared interest. You know, I can see where you're coming from. You can see where I'm coming from. So we, we make an easier connection. I'm going to have to ask the leaders to do the hard part because this is going to be uncomfortable for you to deliberately go out and cultivate these marginalized communities and give them the same opportunity that you have. Um, so that's gonna take some change. Um, yeah. What I would like to see is like, you can even create programs such as uh, creating pipeline programs. Uh, I've seen it in my own organization where senior level leadership, which I will say is uh, pretty bland on diversity, but we're working on it. Um, but they have, we've set up a process where, you know, quarterly we go out and we identify someone of a marginalized community because that's the reality that those are the, the communities that we need to worry about um, integrating into the upper levels of the leadership. And then we offer them the opportunity to not only see what it's like to live in the life of of that particular executive, but also to allow them to shadow them to you're basically, you're making the hope match the promise. So yeah. you're, you're, you're sending a clear message to other members of the board, other senior leadership, that this is something we're going to change, that we're actively working on. And then you're sending that to your, uh, your employees. And I, people talk, they're going to go around and share that kind of information and, and basically validate the actions that you're taking. That's awesome. Yeah. And I've noticed that these programs, uh, if implemented, they're so impactful, but it takes a long time to see the residual effects. I was actually in the, there was a program that I was in, in in the Air Force where I got a chance to spend a day or half a day with the 
co-commander of the base. And we went on a run together, just us. We were in the boardroom together. And even though I didn't get to that um, that high level officer rank, I feel like it really helped me uh, in my transition out of the Air Force. So um, yeah, these programs are super impactful. I feel like one of the problems is that people, um, you know, a lot of times what I've seen is leaders look for ROI within like the quarter or that month or that year and it's like hey this yeah. is going to take <laughs> some time um and you know when we speak to the uh the experience that maybe a a mid-level person is having i feel like since boardrooms can be intimidating spaces um what could a leader do in order to ignite inclusive change in their boardroom um is that is that is, is it the programs and things like that or or is there more than that I think it's that um, what they really need to realize is, uh, so where I work, it's in the space industry. We have a lot of um, engineers engineers and uh, acquisition folks. Um, so the upper levels of our organization tend to be fairly mostly white, mostly male, um, but we have a pretty diverse entry-level uh, community. So whenever I walk around and I see these entry-level engineers, I see, I see young black men, I see young black women, I see young white women, I see mm -hmm. people of other ethnicities and, and genders. And, um, but what they are, fit, are struggling to see is they don't see people like them at the top. So yeah. it's hard, you know, we can focus on hiring and, and uh, hiring diverse workforces all we want, but if you're not actualizing that in your, in your company, then your retention rates and attrition rates are going to be horrible because if I'm in your company and I never see anyone that looks like me or is like me uh, at the upper echelons of, of the organization, why? what is my value in staying here long-term? Because I don't see a return on my investment uh, as far as my advancement or compensation or, or so forth. But you know, what do you think leaders can do to make their teams feel um, more psychologically safe. I feel like one of the things that I've, I've loved about, um, just like, just like studying you is the fact that you are comfortable with sharing your story, um, via, via LinkedIn. And, um, what can leaders do to make, uh, other people feel more comfortable to be vulnerable in aspects of their DEI journey? Thank you. Um, yeah, so, the reason I do it personally is for representation. I think it matters. Um, Love it. I am, uh, and I'm, I'm, the, I'm always aspiring to do the next big thing. Uh, and I want to show other transgender people, other people in the queer community that, Hey, I can do it. You can do it. Here's how I did it. Can I help you? Can I be a mentor to you? Uh, and then obviously intersectionality that could work with other, uh, marginalized communities too. But as far as like how, an organization could do it. So you have the physical environment that you're in. That's one thing you can work on. Um, you know, what's posted on the walls, all these motivational photos, if none of them look like, or if they all look like one particular uh, demographic, then what about your other people? How are they gonna feel like they belong? So you've got the environment that you're building there in your, in your company, but psychological safety is a purposeful intent and an action. Um, and then it goes right back to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, DEIB. So um, again, I said I was transgender. So 
in my own company, there's about 6,000 of us here at, at the campus where I'm at. And I know of, personally know of uh, one trans man who isn't as public about it as I am. So mm -hmm. in reality, in social settings, I'm the only trans person out of 6,000 people that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. And if my organization, so I definitely, I'm struggling to find belonging, right? Uh, and if my organization, when they start talking about diversity and inclusion uh, and conversations never come up about LGBTQ community, I'm going to assume that I'm not as important as some of the other communities that maybe they don't have my best interests in mind. And I'm also going to, again, start wondering, is this the company for me? Do I truly feel psychologically safe here, not only for my safety, but yeah. in my um, in my career? Is is my career safe and staying here, is, or is it going to stovepipe because they're not they're not in it for me? Um, and then also, you know, so we've seen a lot of atrocities over the past few years, especially once we started slowing down with COVID. Um, leaders have got to be tuned in to local, national, global uh, injustices that are affecting their people, indirectly, directly, you name it. So um, we can't. In the past, I think a lot of uh, organizations and leaders, they took the easy way out and they just avoided the conversation whenever uh, major issues happen. And, you know, I can think back, I'm 42, so I think back to the early 90s um, whenever the Rodney King riots happened here in LA. And, you know, I think back to that, I was in school, but it never even got talked about in school, not once that I remember. Um, and so that's just an example of why not take that opportunity to recognize that your people are hurting, that they feel undervalued, and you have an opportunity there to do the uncomfortable thing and have the conversation and build a community within your organization that maybe you don't have already. So um, I personally think put the message out there. You can, you can start it with an email, but I think you should definitely follow it up in person. But put the message out there that, you know, you don't know how they're feeling because you're not in their shoes. Make sure you don't say, I know exactly how you're feeling. And then let them know that you care and that you're here for them and that they're part of the team and they matter to you. And that's why you want to have these conversations. And if they need anything, you're there for them. And so is your team. That is beautiful. Yeah. And I think um, sometimes what I've seen is that leaders struggle to um, navigate when is a good time to talk about these things. And I think... Um, from my perspective, it sounds like the all hands meetings or the weekly meetings, uh, just reserving some space for that um, goes a long way. Is that is that kind of how you how you feel about it? Absolutely. But I, I will add that I've seen it kind of backfire. So yeah. um, so the education and training, I, I argue it's not the, the end all be all to fixing diversity and inclusion, but it is important. Mm -hmm. um, so after George Floyd's murder, uh, we did some deliberate, uh, where we infused ourselves into the work centers. We talked to our staff members. Um, there was a direction from uh, senior leadership that mid-level management kind of engage in those conversations and lead those conversations. And I'll tell you, um, some of those people by their unknown biases, uh, they, they had a lot, they were spewing a lot of microaggressions. They were, um, some of they were intentful to help. I could see that because I sat in on some of them, but unfortunately they, they built up barriers to actually having a constructive conversation because, you know, the young, young black 
staff members and team members that we have did not really feel included whenever the conversation went awry because you have an uneducated, not not necessarily uncaring, you just have an uneducated person on the topic of diversity and inclusion trying to lead a very touchy conversation. And so I think that's where organizations need to focus on too. Like if you don't already have a DEI um, shop in your organization, create one, put the right people in them and make sure that they're educating you, but they're also educating the rest of your leadership throughout the company. If you don't have one, create one. I love that. Um, Cause yeah, I, I, I know that there's a lot of onus as employees to try to develop the space to make it what, what we, what we can. Um, and I know you're a really inspirational and um, influential leader, people leader. What would you say are the most powerful aspects of improving culture from a DEI spec perspective? So the simplest, shortest answer is Kia. <laughs> Kia. So um, not the automaker, not the car maker, but just take the I out, put an E in. So K-E-A. Uh, you need to have knowledge. You need to have empathy. And you need to act. So knowledge, empathy, action. Um, we've probably all heard knowledge is power. I truly believe that, uh, especially if you're going to wind up being an ally. And I'll get into this later, but being anti-racist or anti-homophobic, if you're going to take action with it, then you're going to, you better be prepared to continually educate yourself because this, you know, I've been educating myself daily and I continue to learn and learn and learn. So knowledge is power. Um, empathy is what is going to encourage the action. If you don't have the sense of, uh, you know, internal grief and care and concern for the people around you and the struggles they're going through from their viewpoint and their shoes, you're probably not going to do the action. And of course, the action affects the change. Without the action, you can have all the training. You can post all the, the flyers on the walls um, and you can send all the emails out you want. But until I start seeing it in live action, it's not you're not affecting change. That's really interesting. I know that a lot of uh, leaders are um, kind of frustrated too, especially because they're like, hey, we are doing these diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, um, but then there's still negative feedback. Um, what, like, what would you say to those leaders that are having that conflict within their minds or even like in their company? So um, make it, it, it should be more than a monthly observance. So, mm. um, you know, some people overlook the monthly observance because it doesn't necessarily apply to them. But I think all of us can pick up what's be being put down whenever it seems like it's a an expected response from leadership to say, hey, like right now is by visibility week, uh, Hispanic Heritage Month. Those are the big things I'm going to talk about this week. But why aren't we talking about them all the time? Why do you have to wait until September to talk about the struggles of our Latino and Latina uh, communities, Latinx. Like, why do we wait till September to talk about it? You should be talking about it every day, as often as you can, when you're in boardroom meetings, when you're in staff meetings, whenever you pop your head in into a Zoom meeting to say hello, talk about diversity and inclusion. You don't have to, and it doesn't have to be a long diatribe and, and a confusing conversation. It should be very, very engaging and from the heart and something that I can take action on and I can I can uh, break down and understand exactly where you're coming from. So 
um, yeah, I mean, that would be my simplest answer to that. That's awesome. And I know you mentioned that you you're you're consistently learning um, on a continuous basis. Um, are, is there anything that you've learned recently that um, that you'd like to share, but also um, like w what's a really good resource for DEI learning for folks? Sure. Um, so the biggest thing that I that I'm really working on right now is intersectionality. So I just took a um, a certificate course from the University of Michigan um, called Leading Diverse Teams and Organizations. And intersectionality was something I'd heard of, but I didn't really understand. So um, like whenever I think back to, I think of America specifically, I can think back to the struggles of our black and brown community. I can think back to the struggles of women's suffrage. I can think back to the struggles of uh, any kind of non-European immigrant. Um, and then obviously the LGBTQ community. So I can look at those and, and I can identify those specific things, but then I wasn't taken into account. Well, what if you're a black woman that's hard of hearing? You Now you have intersectional marginalization. So not only am I black, I'm also a woman and I also have a disability. So I'm at a disadvantage in numerous ways whenever you start thinking about structural inequities. So I, I intersectionality just, it really, it, I don't know, it, it's like reinvigorated my uh, desire to get, become more educated on DEI. And it really gave me, you know, a mindset of some of these folks are, are really struggling well beyond what we place an emphasis on in their lives. Uh, some of them have multiple, you know, barriers within their lives and, and that needs to be accounted for. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, this has been a really great conversation, Adeline. Um, and, you know, after listening to your interview, what would be one action you would urge listeners to take after listening to this? So I, I mentioned allyship earlier. I'm going to go back to allyship. Um, and that doesn't mean that doesn't mean just uh, white men or white women. That means everybody. Um, you know, I'm I'm a white a transgender person. I'm not black, but I can certainly be an ally for for the black community. Um, you know, a straight black guy that isn't queer can certainly be an ally of my own. So allyship, I keep going back to it because you know we look at the struggles. What the first 300 years of like an organized government within this country, we we saw slavery for 300 years. We saw the obliteration of the Native American community. We saw women placed well behind men. Um, and then even after, you know, we, we made it through slavery, it took another 90 years for the civil rights movement to actually affect real change in the nation. So, um, and the reason why I believe is because those communities were working on their own. They had onesie twosies, but when you go back and you look at like the Selma March and you look at Dr. King's uh, work and you look at the women's suffrage movement, it was by and large all women, or it was all black folks, or it was all Asian Americans, um, or it's all queer people at a rally. So um, allyship is basically, you're investing your heart, your time, your energy to help that other community because they need your help. Um, and then I'll take it a step further. Being an ally is, is caring, but being anti-racist, anti-homophobic, anti-misogynistic, anti-ableist, which is, you know, uh, someone that's that's marginalized through their disability, and the list goes on. That's the action part. So, the allyship 
is you hold it as a belief and, and the interest is there and the, the, your heart is there. But really, if you want to take action and you want to start being a, a true advocate for change, you need to become anti-racist. You need to start calling these things out, not voting for people that are going to hurt other people. And I don't want to get into politics, but you really have to consider all things. Um, so there's that. Um, social structural changes, you know, that's where allyship is going to kind of come into play. Um, and then, so one thing that people could do like right after this, this podcast is Harvard Business Review, HBR, they did a, published an article in late 2020. Um, I don't recall who, who authored it, but they did an article on how managers could change their behavior and become do better, becoming better allies. So um, obviously if they become better allies and their behavioral change as far as a management manager or leader is progressively getting better, then that's going to mean that your staff is working better. They're going to be happier. The morale is going to improve. Your mission is going to get done uh, in a more pro productive manner. Uh, so I recommend everybody seek out that. I'm sure we can, we can drop that link in, but it's a really, really good starting point to how to become an ally. Um, that's very good. That's awesome. I think there's like a connection between allyship and intersectionality. I think a lot of people can build empathy for each other when they know, mm -hmm. oh wait, you look different than me, but we have like similar challenges in life. Um, so I think that's really important. Um, yeah, we can all yes, be allies. Yes, and I've seen, that, I've seen that more since I came out. Um, I definitely see that more that other marginalized and underrepresented communities usually vocally and um, and they vocally at least acknowledge that my existence, they acknowledge that the struggles that we're going through. So uh, I definitely think the intersectionality plays a big thing into it. And you know, one thing I'll say also, whenever I talk about allyship, so one, I went 41 years of my life as a otherwise straight white man, as far as everyone knew, I was just, I wasn't ready to come out yet. Um, so I've seen the world from the America from the lens of a straight white man in America. Um, and now I'm seeing it from a marginalized community and it's totally different. And so my wife, uh, who is not transgender, um, there are times whenever I try to have the conversation on, on specifically being transgender. Um, and some people won't give me the time of day. They won't even listen to me because they have a deep held belief that was driven by the news, the media, uh, a politician, you name it, they have uh, whatever that has driven their current beliefs. But then my wife, my wife can have the same conversation with them and all of a sudden she catches their attention, she gets their ear. And that's where allyship is so uh, important. I mean, and that's why I really, really want the marginalized communities to wrap their arms around allyship because it's important. Because sometimes those people can reach the people that we need to actually enact the change better than we can and that's that's power wow that is so powerful and thank you for sharing that that's so impactful you're welcome and well adeline uh, thank you for joining us today for the voices of inclusion podcast uh it was definitely a pleasure same thank you for having me uh i was very excited when you invited me uh big thanks to matheson as well thank you all for having me this is amazing if you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. 
go to www.matheson.io and book a call to speak with us. The link is in the description. We're looking forward to connecting with you next time.